0: So back to John 7. And I'm just gonna give it give it away right off the bat. Really, the goal of today's message is just a few things. It's it's not gonna be a touchy-feely sermon, and I know that if you know me, you expected that. <laughs> just kidding, it's not true. Um, and, and, and there's not like a ton of real practical implications, but Um, or applications, but first, it's about proclaiming who Jesus is. Second, my hope and my prayer is that you and I would be convicted in our hearts and that Jesus would be revealed before our eyes. And lastly, um, if you do know Jesus already, uh, just to encourage and remind you of who he is and um, what it looks like to follow him. So, that's it. We need Jesus, we need to understand him, we need to see him, we need to trust him, and we need to treasure him. So, sermon's not done, but. Um, So I titled this message, uh, The Faces of Unbelief, Part 1, Worldliness, and um, I'm not preaching Part 2, Justin will be preaching Part 2, I have no idea if he's actually going to follow that title. But uh, he'll pick up chapter 7 again in January. Um, But in the book of John, the Greek word for belief is used about 100 times. And if you're familiar with the book of John, you know some of the last words um, from John in chapter 20. It says this, This book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So, one of the main themes of this book is belief, and the book portrays an unfolding story of belief. And so, we're here in chapter seven. There's a lot more to come, and so we're we're just in some of those earlier um, phases of the story where where this idea of belief and faith is unfolding. And so today in chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, this text reveals a lack of belief in what we will, what we will summarize as worldliness. So the first point today um, is that worldliness does not look like Jesus. And to understand this text better, uh, I'd like to recap chapters 5 and 6. I know it's been a few weeks since we covered those chapters, um, so let me just highlight certain actions or statements that Jesus has made um, to help us get a little bit more context for what we find ourselves here in chapter 7. And I thought about putting these on the, you know, in slides on the screens, but there was so much um, that we're just going rattle to th- rattle on through here. Um, and so... Uh, these will not be on the screen. Um, The main thing that hangs over chapter 7 is the first part of chapter 5 where Jesus deliberately sought out and healed a man on the Sabbath who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He didn't heal anyone else in that place as far as we know, just this one man. And most importantly, he did this on the Sabbath, which really angered the religious leaders of the day. Then after healing him, he told him to sin no more. And in a way, Jesus communicated that he was equal with God. Jesus said that he gives life to whoever he will, just like the Father raises the dead. Jesus said that the Father has given him all judgment. He said that whoever honors Jesus honors God and has eternal life. Jesus said that he has all authority to execute judgment on the world and all the dead will rise at the sound of his voice. He said that his testimony is greater than John the Baptist. He told people that they do not have God's word abiding in them, and they do not have the love of God in them because they do not believe Jesus. Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about himself. He said that they care, the people care about getting glory from each other and do not seek the glory of God. Jesus said that if they truly believed Moses, they would believe in him. Jesus performed a miracle by taking a few loaves and, and fish and fed over 5,000 people. But Jesus avoided the crowds when he sensed that they wanted to make them, that they wanted to make him their king. Jesus walked on water during a storm before jumping into the boat. He said that the work of God is to believe in him rather than fulfilling laws or performing miracles and signs. Jesus said that he was the bread of life and that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. Jesus said that he will not cast anyone out who will come to him, anyone that the Father has given to him. He says that anyone who believes in the Son of God will have eternal life. He also said that no one can come to him unless the Father grants it and the Father draws him, and that anyone who does come to Jesus has learned from God. Jesus said that he is the ultimate source of eternal life, and he told his disciples that their flesh is of no help. Rather, it is the Spirit of God that gives life. And I mention all of these things to help us kind of see what the people had heard and and felt and experienced leading up into chapter 7. Jesus challenged the common person and their leaders. He challenged their views of the Messiah, the nature of God. He challenged their religious beliefs and practices and of their cultural commitments. He challenged their understanding of salvation. He challenged their views on ecclesiology or the nature and purpose of the church. He challenged them on their hopes and plans for the kingdom of God. And he challenged them of where true and ultimate authority was derived. And it's not clear by the way that John writes. Like if you read chapters 5 through 7, there's a lot of after this and on the next, um, on the next day and and to kind of get a grasp of the timing, but there may have been about six months of time where Jesus is spending in Galilee um, compared to where he was in chapter 5. So this this is a time period where Jesus seems to be avoiding um, too much danger, avoiding too much confrontation, and he's spending his time kind of quietly in Galilee in, in Galilee, where the Jewish leaders wouldn't have as much urgency to, ch- to try to shut down his ministry. But what's hanging over the feeling and experience of chapter seven is still primarily the fact that Jesus deliberately healed a man on the Sabbath. And we'll see that later in chapter seven when we get into that in January. This hatred by the world that we just read is driven in part by the way Jesus challenged their religion. He challenged their way of life by healing this man on the Sabbath and telling the healed man to pick up his bed and walk. And the people are confused and they are confronted by Jesus and only in time would his nature become clear to many. And as I read through this, and considered what to say today. I, I thought that the, in a way it's, it's kind of like some key characters in the new series, Rings of Power. And so I hope I don't give too much away. But the reason I mention that is in, in one situation, you have these three kind of creepy characters. I'll call them witch hunters or wizard hunters, whatever you might have thought they would be. And they're looking for a character who clearly has some unnatural powers. And in another situation, you have a normal character who also has powers, but gives the appearance that he has no desire for acclaim or power. And if you watch through the whole first season, you'll discover that for a period of time, there's actually a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about who is truly evil and who is truly good, even though it's... The idea of, of good and evil is, is clearly there. There's confusion about these characters. And in some ways, like we experience here early in the, the story of John, it's the same with Jesus, because people did not expect the Messiah to look the way Jesus looked. They didn't expect him to live the way he lived, to work the way he worked, to speak the way he spoke. And yet they have to acknowledge his power because of the miracles he performed. About a month ago, um, I had I had this uh, LASIK surgery about a week ago, but about a month ago in preparation for it, uh, I had to have my eyes dilated so you could take some, some better measurements of the eyes. And that day I honestly totally forgot to bring sunglasses with me. If you know what dilations like, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I forgot that that appointment would include dilation. Um, I honestly even forgot what dilation was like because um, it was over 10 years since uh, I had done that previously. Um, and when I left the eye center, the, the building where, where I was at the U, there huge glass windows, and and the building stands higher than many other buildings in the area. Facing west, in the afternoon, the lobby let in a ton of light, and I left around three or four, and so that sun is just beating into that eye center, and I couldn't see anything. I I probably couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of me. at the time. And, and yes, I did drive home. I probably shouldn't have. But um, I was confused. I couldn't see clearly. I couldn't see much at all. But things did clear up over the next few hours. My vision returned. Everything came back into proper perspective. And there's times in life, just like we see here in chapter 7, we don't see God clearly. Our understanding is limited. And we have limited understanding of the context around us. And maybe we even need help to take steps forward in life. But if God is gracious to us, the effects of that dilation, as it were, will fade away. And we can see Jesus, and consequently we can see our own lives with greater understanding, fuller meaning, and increasing clarity to grasp the brilliance of God's glory, not our own. So let's come back to the brothers of Jesus. And we'll get into this later as well, but in some way there's a spectrum of ways that we can think and feel about Jesus, how we respond to Jesus. And as I said, one of the primary themes of the book of John is belief, and conversely, unbelief. But it's not just black and white belief or unbelief, but also the unfolding or revealing or development of that belief. Jesus' brothers... If you're familiar with the story, Jesus' brothers included James and Jude. And you might recognize those names because they're names of books of the, the New Testament. But here in John 7, it says that they clearly did not believe in their brother, Jesus. And based on what they said, it seems like they at least kind of believed, right? Like they wanted to make Jesus known. They wanted him... to to make himself known and and to essentially become a a hugely popular figure. How how could that be unbelief? If anyone should have believed in Jesus at this point, it should have been his immediate family. But John called their disposition toward Jesus at this point in time as unbelief. They had an acknowledgement to some extent of who their brother was, There was some affinity towards Jesus. But as we learn, when Wes preached through, I believe it was chapter, maybe it was chapter six that you preached through previously, we just see this recurring theme, recurring point of, they just missed the point, they missed the point, they missed the point. That was the easiest sermon outline ever. It was five points of they missed the point. and so the brothers here, they, they just misjudged Jesus at, at this point in time. And I know we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Uh, some of you, or may, most of you probably spent time with your, your family, maybe some friends. And as you read through this text in John 7, you might think, how did the brothers feel about Jesus, and how did Jesus feel about them? And I thought it was a little comical. One of the commentaries I read was was from John Calvin, and and he said here, uh, he said this What's told here concerning Christ happens in daily experience, where God's children suffer greater annoyance from their relatives than from strangers. For their relatives might be instruments of Satan, which tempt them sometimes to ambition and sometimes to material gain. But Christ instructs us by his example that we shouldn't yield to the foolish wishes of brothers or relatives. <laughs> and I don't know if Calvin had a few uh, relatives in mind when he, when he wrote that. But I would, I would think that Jesus was probably a little frustrated and a little annoyed with, with his brothers at this point in time too. So here, here in the, in the context, uh, the brothers of Jesus and, and presumably the rest of their family, they were headed to a Jewish feast. It was a, it was a week-long feast they called the Feast of Booths where they would set up temporary shelters and live in them for a week to remember God's provision for the Jews in the wilderness after escaping Egypt. And ironically, and in kind of a twisted way, one of the emphasy, emphases of the feast is to resist materialism. And yet, here it seems like Jesus' brothers want to use the circumstances of that feast to essentially reap the benefits of materialism by propping up their brother. And so Jesus decides that he's not going to go with them because their agenda is not his agenda. And it's not like Jesus was sitting back at home hoping that something more exciting would just come along than going to the feast with his brothers. Anybody else have a, a family member or a friend like that where it doesn't seem like they can commit to anything because they're always just trying to take advantage of like what's the most exciting thing at any given moment? It's really annoying, right? <laughs> I had one of those friends uh, years ago, and... It was a lot of fun, but also that was really frustrating. Um, but that's not Jesus here. Um, and, and the way Jesus is choosing to not go and then go is, is also not like me when I refused to fly to the Acts 29 conference back in October, um, even though everybody else decided to fly. Um, I just know what it's like to fly in and out of Salt Lake in Denver, and it's not my favorite uh, experience um, but yes, everybody else did uh, fly, and I made Jen and uh, my wife, uh, we, we drove together. So, uh, but, but that's not what Jesus did here either. He's not just kind of saying, I, I want to go with you, and, and, and then deciding to go. But Jesus senses his brother's agenda. He senses their goals, how they see the world, and it's not the way that Jesus sees it. He doesn't take the immediate opportunities to build a huge following, to find record numbers of followers on social media. He's not trying to sell out the biggest stadiums or pastor the biggest church. He's not trying to be regularly featured on preachers and sneakers. He's not trying to have a million-dollar smile and empower people to live their best lives. He's not trying to obtain all possible power and glory in politics. Jesus wasn't part of the mutual admiration society of his day, where he's driven by the same things as everybody else around him. Remember what happened at the end of chapter 6? People essentially said that following Jesus was too hard. And so many people walked away from him that Jesus asked his 12 disciples if they were going to leave too. And this made me remember a pastor about... I want to say it was about 12 years ago. He told me, based on this text, it seemed like Jesus was actually okay with people walking away from him. And I had never heard that before. That, that shocked me. And he, he wasn't saying that Jesus liked that, but it was that people were showing their true colors by either following him when things get difficult or giving up altogether it made it easier to tell who was truly a Christian and who wasn't. Remember that Jesus said that many will stand before him in the day of judgment who will not be allowed into his presence even though they claim to know him and even though they did works in his name. But he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Many are going to be shocked and very disappointed at the gates of heaven. Because their belief, whatever it may have looked like on the spectrum of belief, was never true belief. And this is hard to learn and accept. But there's a lot more fake belief out there than what I've always thought. To wrap up this first point, that worldliness doesn't look like Jesus, Jesus. If people are confused, offended, ignorant, or even open to Jesus, then for those of us that do follow Jesus, we should expect some of those same responses from other people. As a follower of Jesus, what's your experience with the world? How does the world view you? Tim Keller taught on this passage over 30 years ago. He referred to an inevitable head-on collision between Jesus and the world. And therefore, that collision would be between anyone who follows Jesus and the world. So, if we think about this, if there is no collision between us and the world, are we really following Jesus? Worldliness is a way, in a way, worldliness is a mindset, it's a system of thinking. By now we know that Jesus didn't look like the world. He didn't blend nicely into the values, the beliefs, the practices of the world of his day. There was a tension. Jesus was persecuted, but he wasn't always and continuously persecuted. Jesus had people that dearly loved him. He had people that admired him. He had people that gave up everything to follow him. But he, so he lived in that tension where those who saw him as he truly was. They loved him. But there were those who didn't understand him. There were those who were ignorant of him. There were those who utterly hated him. And this theme of wanting to kill Jesus is just going to continue and continue here as we unfold the book in the months to come. In this text today, Jesus says to his brothers that the world does not hate them because they fit right into the world. But later Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 15 that the world will hate them because they hate Jesus. So as you wrestle with your response if you're a follower of Christ, does the world hate you or does the world love you? If it only loves you and you're never persecuted, you never have that tension. You probably fit too nicely into the world. But if it only hates you, you're probably just being an annoying Christian who doesn't want to talk about anything except the Bible. Maybe you expect everyone to believe the same things you do and the same ways you do. But if you follow Jesus, you will have some people that are attracted to you who do love you because they see the love of God in you. And you will encounter some resistance as well because you follow Jesus and the world hates Jesus. So it's messy. And we should expect it to be messy. Let's move into the to the second and last point. Worldliness does not love like Jesus. A few days ago, I... Uh, Came across this game called Utter Nonsense. Anybody played this game before? Okay, only two people. Okay, you should you should play it. Um, it really, nothing spiritual in the game, but it's it's a lot of fun. And you basically you take turns speaking one of the seven cards in your hand. You get to choose that, and you and you have to to say it with the accent of uh, what's in play in the round. And so you've got all these different kinds of accents. Um, And uh, if you get to see Jay Hardinger speak perfect Chewbacca, like, it will change your life. Uh, My best was Arnold Schwarzenegger. um, And I got made fun of like I was waiting 42 years to reveal that accent. To the world, but it's actually only like 20 years. Um, and the, the, but the point of the game, if you're gonna try to win, is, is you really need to draw attention to yourself. And part of the fun of the game is that the people that seem to, to maybe win the game are those that you wouldn't expect to normally draw attention to themselves. Here in John 7, Jesus' brothers are calling him out saying he's not bringing enough attention to himself. They're like, Jesus, you need a better PR guy. You need an agent. You can't keep spending your time in the backwoods of Galilee. You've got potential, but you're not quite doing this ministry thing right. If you want to be an influencer, if you want to control the Senate and the House, you need to go to the city You've got to rub shoulders with the right people, and you've got to better craft your personal brand. Obviously, that's not the text of Scripture there, but that's, that's how I would, uh, would see this playing out today. But Jesus didn't love like the world loves. He could have had all the power, all the glory, all the wealth in the world. Remember, even Satan offered him that. But Jesus stood against the world in order to love the world. Jesus stood against the world in order to love the world. Now here in chapter 7, it doesn't use the word love, but it uses the word hate. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus loved the world and he came to die for the world, but the world hates him. And its works are evil. So how is the world evil? Now obviously, we know how the world can be evil in some ways. We just need to pick up any, any news outlet. It's all over the place. But what John is revealing here is a deep-seated pride that ultimately seeks the fruit of praise, popularity, likely wealth, and power. It's called unbelief. Tim Keller said that worldly people always exaggerate the importance of the now. He also said that the most radically secular people in the world are children. Our jobs as parents, if, if, you, if you've ever had any kids, it often seems like our whole job is like teaching them not to blow all their money right now, not to blow all their time right now, all their energy right now. The world says, buy that now. Look good now. Realize that promotion now. Enjoy the success now. We love freedom, power, success, pleasure, and attention. And Jesus could have sought all those things, but instead he chose to remain committed to his mission, to the mission of God. Jesus was was hated by the world because he didn't bow to the idols of the world. He didn't seek a large public presence. He had no social media mass following. He didn't appear on the late night talk shows of his day. He didn't sell two million tickets on his next tour on the first day they were released. He didn't wear cool glasses. He was a normal guy. He was a poor guy. People didn't think he was even noteworthy to look at. He didn't draw attention to himself in earthly ways. He remained single-minded. He knows his time is coming. And what he means by that is his death. But his time is not yet. And if he goes to this feast with his brothers, with their agenda, approaching the city and the crowds and the way they understand the world, Jesus will prematurely bring glory to himself rather than deflecting glory to God. Even though Jesus says a lot of incredible things about himself, he's always seeking to deflect glory to the Father. I was reminded of this in, in a, a simple way, small way, just a few days ago. I, uh, I like to bike, and I have an indoor setup in, um, in our house for the winter, and I use an app called Zwift. And just this last week, I... Uh, I joined a race on Swift to see how I stacked up to uh to the other people um, and this race only lasted about forty five minutes and I actually thought I was doing okay, but at the end it said that I got forty eight out of forty nine and so but I finished the ride and 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 just kind of left it and uh and later, I found that my my ride was uploaded to Strava, which is normal, but it had a picture of my placement <laughs> on my Strava and, uh, and said 48 out of 49. And my first reaction and what I quickly did was just delete. Um, because I care about the, the three of you in this room who actually follow me. Like, I, I can't let that race inform your opinion of my cycling skills. But this reality of seeking glory from man rather than deflecting glory to God is pervasive. Worldliness cares about your attractiveness, your intelligence, your political awareness, your economic success, your ability to be fun or funny. We deeply care about human approval and in it, And as we learn here today, it is often a sign of unbelief. I remember a long time ago, I was doing evangelism on the streets of Huntington Beach, California with a bunch of other college students. And I remember, I don't remember a lot about this situation, but what I remember is this huge buff guy in a tank top showing off standing there on the street and, and there's this girl that was with him. And what I remember from the conversation is, you know, we talked about having a relationship with Jesus and accepting him as Lord and Savior of your life. And I just remember her saying, yeah, you know, I, I've been there. I tried that once and it didn't, it didn't work for me. It wasn't, it wasn't for me. And, you know, she didn't seem angry at Jesus, but she seemed kind of ignorant of Jesus, maybe uncertain about him. And I I don't know her story. It wasn't a long conversation. I don't know what she was really hung up on with Jesus at that point in her life. But clearly she was holding on to something that produced this unbelief in her life. And she thought she had tried it, didn't work for her. And that's where her her belief was at that point in time. Unbelief can have many faces. But each of them used Jesus. Even if you hate Jesus, you still use him for your own glory because you take everything he's given to you. He existed before the world. The world was created through him. He existed before you were ever conceived, and the whole universe is upheld by his words. You take the blessings and gifts and signs of Jesus, but you do not acknowledge him for who he is and what he has done for you. On the other side of the spectrum, and I'm not placing judgment here, but I can see this playing out. You know, Few years ago, I remember watching a video of Kanye West and his uh, his choir at the time. And they're packed in on this airplane, and they're all singing, raising their hands, and they sounded amazing. Um, and and they're singing words and songs that even uh, seem to to express faith and joy in in God. But Jesus may even call some of that unbelief, if the aim is to amass wealth or if the aim is to to bring about human approval, human glory. We can do that here in this room. And I don't know, you know, it's the Lord's place to judge. But there's many examples of even religious leaders who have private jets who have stadiums for churches. You know, we could go on and on and I'm not going to continue there. But the idols of this world are pervasive in and outside of the church. And some of you might be familiar um, in the last few years there's this podcast uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I don't bring it up to you, or I don't bring it up today in order to actually get you to go listen to it, even though I know some of you will. Um, I actually think that most of you shouldn't listen to it, or don't need to listen to it, and and we can talk about reasons why um, outside here. But I wanted, personally, I wanted to go through it because part of my own story is wrapped up in that story. And In that podcast, there's a couple times where a a clip, an audio clip is played. And the context of this clip is that this pastor was once invited to lead a breakout session years and years ago at a conference that had promoted conversations about the emerging church, about postmodernism, about cutting-edge cultural Christianity and theology. And this pastor said that a few days before the conference, he became convicted about the direction things were heading, and he was convicted about his own embrace of a worldly understanding of God and how Christianity should look. So in the breakout session, he he's open and he's upfront about this, and eventually begins to argue with the universalist in the room who didn't originally identify himself as a universalist, but actually was someone in the room who was part of the church. And this pastor said to that man in the room and probably many others there who did not have true belief, he said this, if I look at a tree, I will not rise from death at the end of the age. I need Christ, crucified, died and raised. There is no other name by which man must be saved. I need Christ. I am a wicked man, an enemy of God, born dead in my trespasses and sins. And what I don't need is yet another religion. I need Christ. And if we go back to chapter 5, if I look back at chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus' words there are repeated by the actions in chapter 7. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe if the root desire of your life is to be praised by other people? Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. And if pride is at the root Faith can't be. The brothers are not yet believers because pride is still at the root. They haven't been born again. They haven't, been, they haven't died to themselves yet. The root has not been severed yet. And in contrast, faith at its core is a humble gladness in the grace of God. That came from from John Piper. Faith at its core is a humble gladness in the grace of God. Chapter 1 said in in John, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And Jesus' brothers at this point in time were at root lovers of the praise of men and not lovers of the grace of God. That's, That's what you and I need today. We need to know Jesus. We need to see who he really is. We need to embrace him, love him, and treasure him, and worship him. The world will cause you to misunderstand him. It will cause you to not see him clearly, to dismiss him as irrelevant. I've done that. Or even to hate him. Anything except embracing him. The world will do everything to capture your heart and your mind in the praise of men. It will do anything to keep us from being lovers of the grace of God. There's a few ways that we can and do respond to Jesus. And I just wrote these down. This is a spectrum of options of how we can respond to Jesus and I don't know where you land today. I used all the vowels. Felt like I needed to do something Baptist-like, I guess, to match Justin. But, but we can be angry at Jesus. We can be ignorant of Jesus. We can be uncertain about Jesus. Maybe even open about Jesus we can embrace Jesus. And I don't know where you land today, but we pray as a church that each and every person, each and every child in the rooms behind here would be those whose eyes who have been made clear to see Jesus and whose hearts embrace him and treasure him above all things. Jesus kept a singular focus He remained focused on his mission, the mission of God, despite his brothers in this text. And eventually he did come to Jerusalem months later to be tortured and killed for the world, even though the world hated him. But he rose from the dead to bring new life to the broken and dead world. And he does that primarily through the words of this gospel and through the work and power of his spirit by making you and I born again by his spirit and his word. So now we're gonna move into a time of communion and as we do that, Let's pray together. God of heaven, God of earth, in love, you created the world we know. In love, you granted each of us life. In love, you endured the rebellion of humanity. In love, you saw your son abused and killed in utter injustice and in love you continue to be patient with us so lord god as we as we hear your word today as we sing today it's profound we're perplexed we're convicted and in some ways we we simply lack words because you show us and you tell us that many Many just miss you standing right in front of us. Even though you shared meals with with your disciples, you enjoyed games and events with them, you wept with them, you grew with them, you worked with them. Every good gift comes from God, given to them, given to us, and we look right past you We think our human vision is better. We think our human wisdom is better. But Jesus, you created everything. You sustain everything. You know everything. And you are the embodiment of the word of God. You are the embodiment of wisdom. And please help us to humble ourselves, to listen, to be slow to proclaim our judgments of you and who you say you are. So Spirit, would you lead us, humble us, and fix our faulty, hazy, worldly eyes.